All right. It is Thursday, August 9th, 2007. I'm George Jardine. I'm here in the home and studio of Pete Turner in Wayne Scott, New York, with Pete looking at some of his fabulous photographs. Thank you, Pete, for agreeing to sit down and join me in this little podcast. My pleasure, George. Really, really love your photographs. You've been an inspiration for me for longer than I, I want to admit on this podcast. <laughs> Um, your photography has always stood out as being iconic for me, and um, we've got a really beautiful selection of, of some of your photos here we're going to look at and talk about today. Um, you got your start on a project in Africa. Do you want to talk a little bit about that first project? Oh, I'd love to. Um, it was really a great break because I had just gotten out of the Army and living in barracks with like 50, 80 people double bunk beds and mm. everything. And people approached me and said, would I be willing to go to Africa for six to seven months and document a caravan of 43 trailers driving from Cape Town, South Africa, to Cairo, Egypt? And I said, right away, well, you bet. I'd be glad to do that. And they said, you realize you have to drive in a little box because you wouldn't actually have a, an Airstream trailer. You'd have to drive in actually one of the first prototype RV vehicles hmm. ever made. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And um, I actually loaded my vehicle on a dock in Brooklyn and flew for 43 hours in props to Europe and then to Rome and then down through Cano, Nigeria, and then down through the Congo. It was like those dotted lines that you see that mm -hmm. went to forever and then Johannesburg and finally Cape Town and there was my vehicle. It made it. It made it. It made it in one piece and all I can say is I had the freedom to go anywhere I wanted to. I could drive away from the group, photograph things I really liked, experience incredible weather and roads, and it was pre-independent Africa. It was the Africa before. It was, in a sense, easier to cross borders and mm -hmm. things, and yet um, complicated because we'd have to be met by fueling trucks. Hmm. Huge tankers would meet us at certain points or borders or whatever because these things gulp fuel, and you couldn't drive up to a gas station. Difficult thing. So this was in uh, Cape Town, this, this photo. We started in Cape Town, uh -huh. right. And um, this jumps around a bit. This is actually one of the roads in Ethiopia, and I'm actually pulling a, a fellow's trailer, a golden trailer, which was uh, Wally Byam's gift to Haile Selassie in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Wow. But then that's a whole other story. And uh, dust was unbelievable. I mean, we'd have mud. We'd have dust. We'd have all sorts of things. Did you take all your film with you? Or? Yes, I had it wrapped around a 300-gallon um, water tank, which kept the temperatures pretty good. And, and the vehicle had a range of something like 900 miles, which is amazing. And you can find gas stations like this in South Africa. Wow. Which is like, I think every filmmaker's dream is to find a simple, old-fashioned you know, gas station. But this was it. And back then... In Kenya, when you crossed into the northern frontier district, I came across 
like this wonderful Arab arch. And I, I, I knew that we were making a transition from the Bantu African part of Africa into the Muslim Arabic part and photographed this picture. I thought it was very symbolic. And then many years later, on the computer, I'm enlarging it for a book that I did called Peak Turner African Journey. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I enlarged it. There were all these bullet holes along the side, mm. like blow up. I think one of the wonderful things that stays with me in my first trip is the unbelievable spectacles of places like Victoria Falls at dawn with, with great color and or the wonderful sand dunes of the Saucy Bay. And um, there's, it's a land of incredible contrast, a land of incredible architecture, mm -hmm. like Dar el-Bahari in Egypt. And I think, I think when we got through the whole trip, I think one of the, of course, the highlights was to get to the Great Pyramid, and we were able to wagon wheel in front of it. And I can remember laying on top of my vehicle at night looking up at the stars, looking up at the shape of the pyramid, and they're so bright out there in the desert, and, and saying, God, how am I ever going to top this experience? I'm a kid just out of the Army and had shot about 300 rolls of color film, and it was a speculative job where National Geographic uh, had kind of tutored me to shoot film and send it back to me so I was getting processing results and whatnot. Very, very amazing for the time, and uh, because with film cameras, you couldn't tell if you had dust or this. You had to have checks made, and there was no place to do that. And um, But as you were going, did you feel as if you were getting the shots you needed for the story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, the story was really self-evolving, and it was really anything I wanted to photograph. And, and um, of course, shooting these incredible aluminum machines and the way people would look at them driving through Africa was unbelievable. I mean, it's like, like we were like from outer space. I mean, they just looked at us like, I, I couldn't believe it. I must it's say, a fabulous I mean, shot. This is, yes, this is a, a bar in Ethiopia. And was, I love the, the confidence this fellow has and exudes. And I think we had a wonderful feeling of having achieved really something quite unique of being able to do what we did. And for me, it was an incredible learning experience because I was also a graduate of Rochester Institute of Technology, mm -hmm. four years in their photographic department. The first group to photograph for four years with a bachelor's degree. Up to that, it was only two, AAS degree, and that was it. So we were quite fortunate, wonderful teachers. Ralph Hattersley and Minor White and Bob Bagby and great people. Anyway, rolling ball. I've been into geometry all my life, and rolling ball was a real interesting exercise for me because I realized it was really a hut, a station hut, where they kept equipment below. But the top was conical, and there was another cone on top of that. And it was the only picture you could conceivably make out in the middle of nowhere. And I said, well, it was like 3 or 4 in the afternoon. I said, well, I'll come back there at sunset, and I'll, I'll shoot. And I, I knew it was like 105. And, but I walked around, and I realized that as I'm walking around, the ball of the sun, I could make the ball of the sun. 
I could move it up or down. I could actually put it on the top, put it on the other side. So I could make pictures of this hut top, hut roof. I could make them and create my own interpretation of it. Rather, it was not reportage in a sense. It was building pictures or making pictures. And up to that point, I was always thinking of taking pictures. And then the light bulb went off, and I said, you can make pictures. You, have, you can do more. I kind of knew that instinctively, but this, this image really brought it home for you. Brought it home for me. It was a wonderful learning curve, a good one. Oh, I can see that. Now, I went back to Africa quite a few times, and the giraffe was really a, uh, an image that was overexposed totally. Hmm. I was in Africa for ESSO at the time, and they wanted me to symbolize their company in Africa, and I said, why not take out a tanker? Because I'd remember them from my first trip following us, and I said, we'll run them you know, along the salt flats and maybe try to herd up a giraffe or something to run alongside to symbolize Africa. Well, we never really did get the giraffes, but we got wildebeest and we got zebras alongside and definitely symbolized Africa. Also, they could hear that thing for about 100 miles, and I had every sort of uh, person saying, you can't do that, you can't do that. <laughs> but we made our picture, everything was finished. The tanker went away, and... I have a, a couple of um, Land Rovers, walkie-talkies, and I could see a couple of giraffes, and I wanted to make some pictures for myself. I didn't go all the way to Africa, just I always like to make pictures for myself. So I photographed this series on giraffes, and of course, when I get home a few weeks later, the best, the best, the very best action of the giraffe with the legs just perfectly positioned was overexposed. And it was overexposed like about two stops. Hmm. And in the old days, you couldn't bring back those exposures. And I'm pulling no my- No highlight recovery. Pardon? No highlight. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm saying, oh, I've gotta, I gotta figure out something. And so I had reached a stage where I hated to send my originals out to people. So I reprinard them all. And I had a fancy reprinar that I built. Marty Forsher in New York helped me. And we put a Nikon close-up lens on it with a Nikon body and, and put a real strobe underneath it. In other words, it was a really souped-up professional uh, stage. And I could slide filters underneath, and I could also attach them to a chrome. And I, I said, well, you know, if you were to put a, a Rattan 21 gold filter on top, and a magenta 32 filter taped to the bottom. I forget how that all works, but it comes together and you end up with a red top and a magenta bottom. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was able to do that right on the horizon line. And later on, digitally, we were able to get rid of any artifacts that might have ended up in the middle. But uh, it's become definitely a signature piece. And what happened then is I was able to bring the density back down to where it pleased me, and I was also able to create something color-wise that was totally off the wall. And it was published, picked up right away, and it was exhibited at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. When you went up the steps, it was hung huge as part of Photography and the Fine Arts exhibit. I think that was 1967. 
or 65, I forget. But anyway, it was a big, big thing because people weren't doing filters like this with color. They were afraid to do anything with color. If they put a skylight filter over the front of a, a lens, that would be an enormous color change and a polarizer maybe to darken the sky. That's a fabulous image. So in making duplicates, I came around to being able to change the colors and whatnot. And I don't know if I articulated at all why I got into duplicates, but I got into that because you'd hand out originals. They'd come back from the engravers with absolutely look like people spilled lunches and did dances over the chromes. They were destroying them. And I realized I just had to, had to come up with a technique. And my technique really was that I would increase the saturation of the color by rephotographing the chrome, not with duping film, but with Kodachrome. So I'd be going Kodachrome to Kodachrome, which would give me an instant increase in the total, you know, contrast of things. And then using filters and drawers, it's like you and saturation. I, I basically had a mini Photoshop going for myself, mm -hmm. a very mechanical Photoshop, a very primitive one. But nobody else was doing stuff like that. And I just fell into it because I didn't want to send out my original work. Hmm. And as an offshoot of that, I was able to move into really far out colors like the giraffe. And in 1970 in Nambuselli, very near where I did the giraffe, I found this cheetah in the bamboo stalking along. And I kept shooting. I'm shooting like a thousandths of a second or whatever it is to stop the action. All of a sudden, I had like a roll already. I put another roll and I said, this is ridiculous. What happens if you slow, start cranking down the speed so you can get some motion in there and, you know, do some good stuff. And um, I shot at all different shutter speeds and it went on and on. This cat is just going right through bamboo. It was the most wonderful. Right next to the road, he stayed exact distance to me and we just shot endless frames and, and uh, I forgot about it. I get back to New York and process the material and it was unbelievable it was thrilling but it had to be it had to go through second generation and get enhanced and colorized and do those things it's a nice use of the contrast and the saturation i love surreal things just like mm -hmm. a giraffe and with these ostriches i wanted to create a very surreal image and i knew the necks it's called necking i knew the necks just had to you know be there and I and I and there were people called ostrich herders at this farm hmm. and they herded them so that I could use a 300 millimeter and actually get them right behind the sun and we did that and I was very happy with the exception I had one little problem back in 1970 one of the one of the ostriches was looking away from the camera and I believe it's the second guy here he was looking away and he had no beak. Thanks to the wonders of digital photography, <laughs> he now has a beak. <laughs> Perfect. And that's a real good use of cloning, I got to tell you. It was fun to do. Mozambique, I'm driving along and I see these different women and they're coming back and forth at market. And we hit the brakes. It's real interesting because their faces are all painted white. And uh, they're wonderfully friendly people. We photographed them. And I asked them, I said, well, what is that tribal makeup they have on? They said, oh, no, that's not tribal makeup. That's their morning cream so they don't get acne and stuff. So uh, 
I made a, um, a really interesting series, and, and mm. the people are so wonderful on Mozambique Island. And there was, I believe, a war going on very nearby, and uh, and yet these people went about their way, and they love color. Wow. This is a little series I did in the manga, Kenya. It's a couple hours south of Nairobi. They have a very special thing about their earlobes, and they pierce them. And in olden times, they used to put rocks in them to stretch them out, and then they put adornments in them. But these days, they didn't like the weight of rocks. So they'd put, like, this guy walking by with a film can in his ear, or this guy with a cigar can here. And I thought that was pretty classy. And then, like, a more traditional fellow would come along and he'd just mm. have a piece of copper earring and this this is rather classic image of mine mm-hmm. it's called electric earring maasai profile and i was going to wrap it up after this picture because i felt it was almost like oh you know the curtis the early american curtis work and whatnot i mean it was just so perfectly kenya and maasai that i was literally getting ready to throw things and in the case, and this man walks up, and he's got this pineapple can in his <laughs> ear. Wow. And it's the biggest can I ever saw, and he's very proud of it. He posed for me. I was just thrilled. And when he walked away, and I compensate each of them. Like, I give them a Polaroid, and I give them a shilling or whatever, because I believe you should do that. And everybody's very happy. You know, when he walked away, I said, okay said to my assistant, I said, that's it, it's a wrap, we're we leaving, and we got it, and that was great, and after a while, about, oh, I think in 95 or so, I decided, gee, you know, I have to put these things together, and then uh, a few years ago, I came out with a book called Pete Turner, African Journey, and it has this color, uh, you know, this foot with a wonderful, um, rings around it Mm -hmm. of all different colors and textures and actually they're telephone copper wires and any any yes and um the people are noted for ripping down their (laughs) their communications and electricity to get at the colors wow (laughs) but uh that'll teach them to put colored wires out (laughs) there (laughs) yeah i don't think they're color coding the wires in that area anymore but that was the title of pete turner it's on the cover of pete turner african journey so here we are in Iceland. <laughs> well, not quite yet. I'm in New York. I'm reading the New York Times. It's in the morning. I see this little couple-column-wide picture of a volcano, but it was erupting in the middle of a town. And I said, that's really different. And I called up my editor friend, Harold Hayes, at Esquire, and I said, Harold, take a look at the New York Times. And he looked at it, and I said, I want to go there. I want to go there. I want to fly tonight. I said, I want to be there. And he said, but Pete, he says, you know, I got to get OKs and everything. I said, there's no time, Harold. I said, you got to do it. And I want you to call ahead for me and get a writer or somebody to meet me and, you know, get me, you know, get it together. And I said, can you please, you know, try to do it? He says, well, give me an hour or two. Let me see what I can do. He says, I think it's a good idea. I think we should do it. So I start packing my stuff and getting my gear ready. And and sure enough, the phone rings and he says, you got it. Wow. And it was a five o'clock flight or I had to leave at five. I remember five o'clock and get to the to Kennedy and flew over there, was met, flown to the island and it was absolutely awesome. It was like a Japanese Godzilla 
thing. I mean, mm. I was transported into something. I mean, the sound of the the eruption was like, I can't make the sound, but it was like a hundred locomotives going back and forth spewing. Mm. And this particular picture, people think is a special effect, but it's not. Mm. It's about a 30 or 40 second time exposure at dawn. And that thing would go that direction and then it would fume up and then start spitting off to the right. And we'd be hit with things and whatnot. I was with a group of people with hard hats and whatnot, scientists, and and um, and we tried to get catnap at night. And, and the sound of these rocks hitting your, you know, they had corrugated stuff on top. It was amazing. And they were afraid the island might blow. I mean, nobody knew what this was. It's very near the old Sturzy location. Mm -hmm. uh, Sturzy is like. 20 or 30 miles away and that's where the creation was done and all that stuff oh, yeah. it's um unbelievable anyway i have this series and i went back basically it's present day so if you look at the volcano then and then you look at it at present day you can see that that oh, yeah. not much is going on in this particular shot, but but the town wasn't the town, completely destroyed. It was the town was rebuilt and rebuilt in the same way. It's very interesting. Like this little house, you can see the volcano going off in the oh, background, yeah. like a curved window. And I when I went back, wow! Lo and behold, there's green grass. Everything is being painted slowly but surely. They're fixing things up. And, and so this was shot just recently, right? Uh, like I think in the late 90s, mm. you know, and uh, the whole town like was inundated with ash and tufra, which is like glass when you walk on it. I remember I had to, for some reason, got too much in my shoe and I'd peel off my sock and it would cut the soles of your feet. You just, mm. you just couldn't get into it. I, it's bad stuff. And, um, but going back, bingo. Wow. It's an amazing transition. To, it's like a time machine when you go back and forth and you see yeah, these same things. buildings. Yeah, and we've done this in a way that they actually are registered, so it's really kind of neat on a big screen. That's a great comparison. And, and where were the originals published in Esquire? In Esquire, mm -hmm. and the the outtakes have never barely been published when I went back. Oh, I thought Esquire would want to pick those up and republish them. <laughs> well, they, it's a whole different teams of editors and things. Magazines change. It's different. And so, you know, my career has expanded, you know, over many, many years. And I've always been experimenting. Even when I was in the Army, I was taking pictures because I was stationed in Long Island City. Hmm. It's a tough tour of duty running a color lab. And this is in 1956 to 58. Uh, so this this is photographed in 1957, and since I'm running a color lab, I could go. I'd have weekends off, and I could go into the city and shoot things and experiment. And I loved to play around with motion and focus. I thought that was great, and um, and color. I was running a Type C color lab, and Type C had very new, but the Army was the first to get this stuff from hmm. Rochester. And Type C was a dream come true for a guy like me because I could play with the color again. And uh, maybe that's the reason I got into not having a problem photographing, re-photographing my work on Kodachrome and increasing contrast mm -hmm. and things. Because I was used to the darkroom, the whole darkroom scene. It's Times Square in the middle of a snowstorm. Again, yeah, I love this shot. Um, very simple. 
uh, it's just fun to shoot after a, a big snowstorm. Mm-hmm. Of course, no people. I like that. No footprints either. No footprints. <laughs> oh, this is a classic. Well, I had a, an assignment, actually, to do a, a cover called Soul Flutes for Creed Taylor. He said, what would you like to do? And I said, why don't we do a lips? Why don't we do lips? He said, well, that will be great. And I said, but I'm fed up of looking at lips as they appear in Vogue and Bizarre. And, uh, I, you know, I said, they look so perfect. And I've done a lot of beauty ads, too. And it's like the search for perfection keeps going on and on. And I said, why don't we just paint them a raw red. Let's get a makeup artist with real paint and paint the lips red. And I said, that should really be a very good, um, that should be a good drawing card for oh, people yeah. to get interested in the album. So we did it and it worked out. Yeah, it really pops. We were doing an album, uh, Day in the Life, with West Montgomery. Hmm. And I had taken this photograph in the morning after waking up uh, with a friend that didn't seem to be working out too well, and there were all these cigarette butts and, <laughs> and the ashtray, and I said, gee, you know, this kind of sums up the way I feel about this relationship, and I photographed it. And then later on, when we were trying to figure out what to use for a day in the life, I said, I got the exact picture. And everybody agreed that this was, this was the route to go. Wow. So I think the only lesson here is that we can all strive for beauty in our photography or whatever, but there's a certain amount of interest and in beauty in the ugly, too. I, I think photography is wonderful in the way it goes back and forth and the sort of things you can shoot. And lately, I've been, you know, I've been very interested in just shooting uh, things where I live. Mm -hmm. And um, you don't have to go halfway around the world to some exotic place just to make a picture i i think like i'm interested in triangles and shapes and things and i'm finding them in in the shadows mm -hmm. and, and angles and things and it's really very interesting and well, you've done some very interesting recent work in mexico with those colored shapes well that's true maybe we can get into that a little later again this was back in i think 1961 this is night train Mm -hmm. And um, it's part of a series I did on the railroads of America. Again, I presented it to Esquire, and I said, well, you know, what happens if I get on a train at, at uh, Grand Central, and I go around the country, go over to Portland, go down the West Coast, come across, go across Texas, New Orleans, and then work my way back up, I can get out at Penn Station. They kind of liked that idea, so they called it Pavan for the Iron Horse. And I'd ride it for a while, get off at a place, shoot the tracks, shoot the trains, shoot from the train, shoot the trains going by. It was a dream come true, because I always loved, I always loved trains since I was a kid. And, um, and this is one of the pictures that came out of it. And the beauty of digital work, of course, is we're able to, like, Photographically, this green was very had very lost, and we were mm -hmm. able to bring it back, and and the the red stripe was weak, and I were able to pull it back, and a lot of my work has been worked on. Boatwake is mm -hmm. a classic example. Many people don't know what they're looking at. They say, "What are those balloons?" <laughs> yeah, it is. A, yeah. It's very abstract. 
But Boltwake, I was photographing in the fjords in, in Scandinavia, Norway, and they're very interesting. Fjords are built with great high walls around them so that basically you have gobos all around you, mm. you know, high things that shade the light. So if a boat is making a reflection, it's going putt, 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 putt. Well, you can see those putt, 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 putt things going on in the water. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just, you know, I was shooting usually from the side of the boat. And then I looked to the back. I couldn't believe my eyes. There was an actual visual rendition of the sound of the boat on the water that was perfect. Hmm. And I photographed it immediately. And then I'm, really, it's a wonder. I had just the right lens and everything. It didn't last for long because we had that nice turn. I mean, if it was going straight, I suppose that would be an interesting picture. But I think the very fact that you have this nice curving into and definitely, it was not a hired boat, so it was a one, a one-shot deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just comes together in a great composition. It really worked out well for me, and the blue color is great. And and what you're looking at is the sky directly above, mm-hmm. reflecting in the water, which is not waves. So nice. I'm setting up in India, and I see these dyers and have these wonderful hands that are all different colors and. There's this fellow that had red, really red hands, and I said, boy, that'd be make great shots. So I went over to him and asked him to hold his hands for me, and and I have everything set up. You know, it takes a while. Back then, I think this is in the 60s, and, and uh, just getting ready to shoot, and this fly lands, and I shot real quick. And that thing is sharp as a tack. I've blown that up 300%, and those flies are like, the wings of the fly is just mm. sharp as a tack. But it's great when you set out to do one thing and then that accident happens and you get something a little bit more. Like a fly just lands. Yeah. And I kid people. I said, well, I had a pet fly. (laughs) Old age. I was in in Sweden. I was working on a movie. I think it was The Seagull. And again, every time when I work on jobs and things, I just sometimes just have to get away. You know, especially if you're doing something that's intense and you just want to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I like to go out and shoot for fun. And this is one of those things where I hid behind the shadow of the tree, saw this wonderful couple. And I title it Old Age. You know, I like the way the shadow works. Mm -hmm. and The wonderful greens, you know, up in the stripe, just a touch of blue. Just the right right amount of color, mm-hmm. and and to me that's a very special picture. And I like the title of pictures as I get to know them. Mm-hmm. I'm in Ibiza on the island, on the Balearic Islands, off Spain, and doing a little uh, essay on that town, and and all whitewash, beautiful and whatnot. And I and I had this interesting angle, but the street was empty, and it could have been a picture without a person, but I had seen people walking across the street specifically just right this way, you know, from mm-hmm. left to right. And people, how they wear different things and whatnot, a guy, this, that. But I'd seen a woman prior in a long black shawl, and I said, oh, it'd be so good if I could get, you know, another person dressed similarly. And sure enough, one came along, and... uh I'm watching, and I can't almost believe my luck because I could tell about five beats ahead that I was sure she put her foot on the curb. And I was ready, 
and I'd been ready for quite a while. And she she came down, she hit that curb, and I hit that button, and I got it. And I knew, I knew right then, I didn't need to see film or anything. I I had that, and it was just such a great feeling. And it's called Ibiza Woman. Great texture, good moment. Thank you. And a similar thing happens at Vauvicant, which is a which is a wonderful uh, castle that Lenote built, designed in France. And uh, they have wonderful gardens and whatnot. And I love the use, the way they're geometrically shaped and everything. And I had a pretty good picture going. And this guy walked like out from behind this U hmm. and somehow did a little twist with his coat. And I got this shape and I knew, you know, right away, again, that was like the time to make the picture. And it was an overcast day. And it's so I had, I was using an 85B filter to warm it up a little bit, and you can make out like some of if you know the terrain mm -hmm. you can slowly start mm -hmm. to make it out. The prints of these are much I find them much more uh, interesting to look mm. at prints because they're more you know you can see a lot more sometimes. Interesting. Well, geometry has always fascinated me, and and I think as a kid I loved I loved the World's Fair symbol the trilon and mm -hmm. photosphere mm -hmm. and it was you know the 39 world's fair i think i was uh, about five years old or something but i remember going through books and seeing pictures of it and i've always been inspired by geometric shapes by triangles and by round things like rolling ball you know mm -hmm. the sun mm -hmm. in the desert and and so i've always shot things like that and one interesting image is future city which um, is in the permanent collection at LACMA and uh, Robert Sobiezak collected that and and actually was in his book the art of persuasion because it was photographed for Bell Atlantic and the art of persuasion is the art of advertising and it was really interesting we had models made what looks like a little city those things are actually four feet high maybe hmm. you know four 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 it's there it's quite a a big a big set yeah and, and, and that then, scale is, is very difficult to imagine <laughs> i know and they're all pixelated and we lit them underneath and everything and then this guy is really um a four by eight set it's lucite plexiglass with all those shapes cut these shapes you're looking at are all cut to fit hmm. and we put them together uh, the whole team at the studio it was a big job, and then of course it's we put it on, gave it English, so it has a little spacey feel to mm -hmm. it, and then flipped it over on the top to you know give it. Um, but in a sense, well, people have called me the pre-computer photographer. Mm. <laughs> it's not. It's like I've done a lot of things before the computer, and you know that's sort of like it's it's fun. It's a nice uh, shot. And uh, did we uh, double expose the moon, the the Earth in there, huh? That's the moon. Uh huh. And you know, I, I'm not big for huge moons, or I I know some people like to put gigantic things in sure. them, but I like I think less is better than more. More. And I felt yeah. also it gave better scale to mm -hmm. the city, and I just didn't want a total full moon, you know. Right. Well, you do get a spherical element there, and that's nice. It's fun. I had done a whole series in Portugal mm -hmm. for TAP, the airlines, and one of the places we saw 
and we bought a whole bunch of these cases. They're all different colors and whatnot. And working for the airlines, I could bring them out to the airport and they'd pack them in the, in the <laughs> fly them back to the States. And anyway, I hung out there for a little bit. And the first thing I wanted to do is get a reflection from the top of a car or something. So, so it didn't just end in a, a curb, mm. a curb along the street. Mm -hmm. I think maybe they'd spilled stuff and whatnot. So I used the top of the car just to sort of pick up a little reflection. Then going back in, photographed a wonderful series of these people working and whatnot, and that could have been the picture. And it would have been good. Nothing wrong with it. But after I got back and I looked at this and I saw that black doorway, I said, somehow that black doorway needed something. Mm -hmm. And so this is titled Doorway in the Sphere. It's actually a billiard ball. Oh, uh, yeah. And I tried a red one, and I tried yellow, but this, this guy worked out just right. Yeah, so. it's nice. And I like to defy gravity whenever I can. I think defying gravity is a lot of fun. This was done for a company called Univac. Oh, yeah. But the picture that was done for Univac was this inside image. And we created it by reflecting three rows of geometric shapes and then using black Carrara glass as a mirror hmm. to reflect them in it. And that duplicates the number. And I'm being very influenced by Tangi when I did this. And it was an, really an assignment that said, Pete, do anything that you want to that can somehow some, uh, symbolize numbers and computer, computer talk, you know, that sort of thing. So it lent itself to... You know, all these sorts. So, well, you know, let's put together a lot of geometric shapes. And one night said, great, let's do it. And they were quite happy. And here I am with these wonderful shapes, but without a real home. And in 1969, on Fire Island, I brought a small sampling of those shapes. A, a sphere and a, uh, a triangle shape and a cylinder shape and a square. And I brought out... A, um, a piece of wood and some black velvet and put them out so that I could shoot them against the sky. And I got lucky. It was a great day. Hmm. I had some clouds go by and I got different cloud compositions and I was pretty sure I, I, I was working for a picture which I was going to call the shapes of things to come but I knew that if I worked it over, repeated it reflected it and then slid in the this other element it would become more and and that the combination of everything becomes greater as a whole than each picture mm -hmm. as an individual another thing that really turns me on is reflections i love reflections mm -hmm. and i was photographing the victoria falls which which i think we showed earlier and I was with a friend, and with Harold Hayes, and Harold said, what you doing, Pete? Because they handed out these umbrellas to people because the mist would blow over from everybody and everybody get wet from the falls. Hmm. He said, what you doing under that umbrella? And I said, well, I'm photographing this reflection. He says, are you crazy? You're in front of the wonders, one of the wonders of the world. Why aren't you shooting that? <laughs> I said, Harold, this is really interesting. You know, look. And I, it was totally, you know, a spectrumatic umbrella. And I'm 
more interested in the reflective poles. And it's interesting today, I notice, like um, with umbrellas and beaches and things, they're all white plastic. Yeah. You know, but back then, they were still yeah. metallic. Interesting shot. We had an assignment from IBM, uh, it was about bubble technology. And actually, Will Hopkins was the art director on that. And they wanted me to photograph bubbles because there was some sort of way that bubbles could interconnect to become mm -hmm. sort of the magic things like chips are and stuff. I don't know if it ever worked out, but we got crazy about bubbles. And we were trying to photograph bubbles against no seam and whatnot is an interesting problem to solve. And they're very transparent. And they're very kind of bland, mm -hmm. to put it simply, very mm. bland. And after shooting a while, I said, this is never going to work. So I went back to the drawing board, and I, I, we, I had the guys. We tried to figure out ways to reflect in different things just as a test. And I said, well, hold up some gels, and let's see what goes on. And we had plexiglass behind the gels and then a light. And sure enough, the bubble act like a Christmas tree ball, which mm. is kind of what I was hoping. So we built a light box, top and bottom, of rows of colored gels and laid out the colored gels spectrumatically, just as, like the colors of the spectrum. So it'd be like green, yellow, red, blue, something like that, and repeated exactly on the top. Then I'd have an assistant blow a bubble, and this was before autofocus. And the depth of field was a very narrow window. Hmm. And the longevity of a bubble is about a nanosecond. But what's interesting is just before the bubble breaks, you get all this, this diffraction going on on the edges, and you get all these curvy things and going on. So I made a really wonderful series of the bubble. It reminded me almost of 2001-type images. In fact, if, if Kubrick had seen it, I think he'd probably want to do the same thing a little bit for his slit scan scene. But I have the bubbles alone. And on a few frames, part of the, the light box showed. In this case, the blue and red layers that were mm. reflecting. And it wasn't really my original intention to include that in the picture. But when I see a good lucky accident like that, I definitely incorporated it in this image, and I think everything comes working well together. Oh, yeah, it works great with the yellow against the blue there at the bottom. And uh, with the, you know, Photoshop technology and selective colors, you can now go in, and I can find colors that we just couldn't get before in a dye transfer. It's just amazing. Selective color alone is an amazing tool. Mm -hmm. I was tired of seeing models with the studios in their eyes with umbrellas reflecting back in or you could turn the pictures upside down you could pretty much tell what a guy's studio or a person's studio would look like and I said well why don't we try to to beat that reflection problem hmm. and Peggy Moffat wonderful model did all of Rudy Gernwright's fashion stuff and I, I figured she'd be perfect for it and we hired her to do this and what we did is we created a um, what's now called a soft light, but this was made of pure plexi. It would be like a eight-foot square plexi, 
And then I cut a huge black circle, and I stood in the back. I'm hidden behind that black circle, which mm-hmm. is pasted onto the plexi. And I could make myself disappear, because this is all before the digital retouching sure. you know, period. So you had to go to great lengths to do things that would be just you know, a second away on the computer, but it was fun, and uh, it's called Reflections. I always wondered what would happen if you opened something up and you saw a, a, a human eye looking out at you, or an eye, for that matter of <laughs> fact, any type of eye, right? My wife, Wren, had gotten a whole collection of eyes for me to photograph. I just wanted to do it anyway, and um, I picked one that I really liked, and we put it in different things. We tried it on fruits, vegetables. We tried it on ketchup. But the can, putting it in a can of something seemed to work good. So we opened up a lot of cans and stuff. The best thing that really worked was canned peaches. That really worked because there was a little indentation in the peach where the pit was, hmm. and the eyeball just wanted to fit in there. And there was some rotational things going on that we needed to do to fix up and whatnot. But that became Eye to Eye or Canned Funk. It has two titles. And what happened to all those eyes, that I'm talking about what I got, was a picture called Soft Room. Hmm. And uh, this is inverted. It obviously was photographed as a still life one way, but I always wanted to get a feeling of an overview of it. I wondered it would be like if you walked into a room, you know, uh, like a padded room, you know, and I'll have all these eyeballs looking out over you. And I believe that was done with a Zeiss Flectagon lens hmm. long ago. But they came out with the first real 20 millimeters. All right, I had um, been traveling down to Monument Valley, and there's a small town called Cayente, which had a Holiday Inn. And they were just opening, and I noticed this new sign that was up in front of the hotel when I checked in. And it was so fresh and so painted, wonderful yellow and orange. And then down the street, there were other signs and whatnot. And I said, you know, that'd make a great shot. But it was late. It was, you know, I'd been on the road. The light was not right. But the next day... I got out there and and hit it, and I like midday light. I like midday light a lot, and because it's got a real good balance to it, and it, you know, it's sunlight, and and uh, I get, I I love wide angle photography, so I'm walking around this sign, and um, it just everything came together for me with the welcome and the gasoline signs going on through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are all little parts of things, and even a few wires and things which are nice and I don't like to over sanitize things I like I think it's fun to leave things in I think one of the big problems the biggest problems of um, the computer generation is that they tend to want to over sanitize things because they can but it doesn't always make a picture better and I, I just love this type of color it has all the main colors that you really like and it makes a statement and it's part of my real Americana type series, which I've always photographed and like to do and still do. Push is a, a favorite picture. Many people uh, have asked me about it. And I was at a pool on the Gulf Coast, just kind of taking a break. And I, 
I looked over and next to the the hotel that I was staying at by the side of the pool was this beautiful trash can with a red top and yellow bottom. But the background was kind of, well, a fire escape or something. It was not interesting, but boy, that thing was. In my mind, I said, gee, you know, why not move that thing over, maybe over towards the water or something and, you know, shoot something clean about it. So it was very light and I just pulled it over to the beach. People kind of looked at me funny, thought I was, <laughs> thought I was running away down the beach with sure. their trash can or something. And the first thing was I was way too far away from the water because I had a 20, I was using a 20 millimeter at the time. So I kept moving it closer and closer and I found a good point where the shape of the top and the shape of the bottom and the here I could line up the horizon lines and I did the different pictures and I still have them where the uh, red top actually cuts up, you know, high into the sky and then where it lines up with the line of the sand uh, as mm -hmm. opposed to the horizon. Mm -hmm. But ultimately I ended up with a uh, an image where the all the lines come together at the horizon and it's really a very interesting optical sensation that you get. And it's also a wonderful image to print. You can get some wonderful colors on this thing. Uh, the real trouble, again, in a picture like this is where do you stop sanitizing it? Because there were some pretty ugly things in the sand, and I did want to get rid of those. But then you want the indentations and whatnot. And, sure. And, um, but push has become a classic, and uh, people really relate to it. How do you feel about push, George? Oh, I like it. I like the... Um, I like the top of the photograph is is like a perfect blue gradient with no distractions and i really i like that in juxtaposition to the geometrics of the the yellow and the red and the tan color in the sand below it's a, it's a it's no wonder it's a classic this is a used car lot and a lot of people ask me where did you get all these pristine cars mm -hmm. vintage cars looking that great and in fact it was a used car lot i think somewhere in texas and i just stopped the car because it was just really interesting and good and and it had a good sunset going on behind it and mm -hmm. it seemed like a good uh, juxtaposition of lights and whatnot but at the time those cars were not classic cars but now as things age it's very interesting that things get more interesting because there's a time thing goes on, mm -hmm. and uh, all of a sudden it's a vintage car a lot. <laughs> sure. No, it is a great shot. It does feel like Texas. Yeah. It almost feels like, I, I love the red um, uh, fringe there. It almost feels like those should be American flags. It is a great shot. It's, it well, definitely says. It's interesting how, how like that fringe type thing has progressed and today it gets so gaudy and they'll hang anything, you know. It's amazing. But it's really tasty little, uh, yeah, the bear little bulbs. used car lot. The bear bulbs are great. Road Song is a classic image and uh, part of my Americana series. And I had been photographing a whole bunch of uh, Chinese artifacts for Time Life books in Kansas City, of all places, in their museum down in the basement. And it was really a, 
a tough assignment where you're you know just stuffy and and boring and you know I don't know why I accepted it maybe I wanted to go out to Kansas but anyway when I was landing at the airport I saw this white fence that surrounded the airport and I didn't even understand what a white picket fence would be doing out around an airport because normally they have chain link fences and whatnot. Sure. But um, they had this fence that went forever. So I said, gee, if I have any time, I should go back there and scope it out. So I got fed up one afternoon, like third day or so, and I said, let's go out there and check out that fence and get some fresh air. So I go out to the fence by the airport. And it's gorgeous, and it's freshly painted, and as you can see, it goes on to infinity. And there's a road right next to it, and I saw cars going up and over a hill. And I, well, I said, i got to hang out here, and I had my tripod and whatnot, so I got a good angle, locked down the camera, and I waited. Read a book or something, <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, as the light started to change at dusk, I could see that it was getting ready time to shoot and um, cars would come up that hill and then they'd hit the brakes usually hmm. and the back light would go off you know two back lights and it'd be beautiful because you get two little lights and I just did a I just shot a whole series and it worked out beyond my expectations and I actually did it right into the sunset also mm -hmm. with an afterglow of red and whatnot with car headlights coming at me but after that a little bit later was the dust shot and the taillight and that worked out to be a west montgomery classic called road song hmm. for an album cover and uh, is one of my signature photographs very nice more recently i've been i've been very interested in shooting doorways and different shaped doorways, stairways, and colors, of particularly in a place south of Puerto Vallarta that I first went to when I was on the film Night of the Iguana mm -hmm. years ago. And the colors there are spectacular. And I love, I love a picture like this. It goes from one plane into another, into a third plane. And you have this marvelous transition going on and at the same place I'm walking along and I see these walls and there's this wonderful glow happening between two walls and, and it's to me that's that's the real fun of photography when you see something you don't expect and you get you know a transition and glows and things and it and in the next image it's different where it's just really all about color and next the mm -hmm. next image is about just lollipop color that glows and there's sort of a concentration of it where I let it go slightly darker on the outside than mm -hmm. the inside mm -hmm. and you have this wonderful almost visual explosion so it's a different thing because when you go back to the other picture you're getting true light white blasting where on the next picture, which is called Parking Wall, you don't really have that, that highlight to go into, but mm -hmm. you do get this blast of, of central bright color. It's a real hot spot. Yeah, it is a hot <laughs> spot. And, and in, maybe in conclusion of that, 
of that particular series that I've done in Mexico is Skyworld, which to me is really a wonderful image because as you look at it, it's almost like another planet, a water planet or something that you're looking at. It's an optical illusion that you're looking upwards and it's uh, the cloud just, just makes it work for me and it looks like a water world or something. Mm -hmm. It's another planet. It's like science fiction photography. Yeah, the blue against the yellows. I think this is my favorite out of the series. Really? Yeah. Well, that's interesting, George. Uh, this is the one that, that caught my eye that caused me to call you up and ask you to shoot some demo <laughs> images for us in, uh, in Mexico. Well, that's true, and that was a fun assignment. It really was. And, um, well, at this point, I think um, we can call it a day. I mean, the current book I'm working on, I mean, I finished, is The Color of Jazz. Mm -hmm. and, Just published? And, yes, it came out uh, a few months ago, and it's a lot of fun, and it has, like, a lot of these pictures are in it. And uh, I was lucky to get Quincy Jones to write the introduction, and and um, it's a good way to use my eyeball picture. There you go. <laughs> nice way to nice way to end the yeah, series. Yeah. So well, here's looking at you, George. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> Thank you so much, Pete. Really appreciate you sitting down and showing us some pictures and telling us about your your vision. My pleasure. Your my pleasure. Thanks. <laughs>